Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the learning language model knockreiner. Or wait, no, 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 not learning language model. It's a long day, y'all. Large? Large language, language model. model. There you go. On today's episode, as Corey's hinting at, we'll be covering some of our favorite topics from really the best part of Hacker Summer Camp here in the middle of the desert in the middle of August, and that is DEF CON. Uh, without any further ado, though, let's go ahead. No, deodorant. Deodorant's my favorite topic. I wish that was a more widely used and topic. Maybe more available male toilets that are clean. That would help, too. <laughs> All right, let's hack Sorry. our Sorry. <laughs> So welcome to, I guess this is our regularly aired episode on Monday. Monday. Last one came out on a Friday. Uh, But we've got yet another recap episode for you, this time coming from, I think, our favorite of the two hacker summer camp conferences. Definitely. And that is DEF CON. uh, DEF CON 31, to be specific. Now, my first DEF CON was 22. I can't remember the number. Mine was Alexis Park, but it was... It was probably above 10, mm-hmm. but it was no longer here. Not many people go to the Le- or went to Alexis Park. Quite I don't think many people con. go to Alexis Park right now. Uh, hopefully no one. I wonder <laughs> if the hotel still exists. I'll have to look it up. We'll have to check it out. Uh, but if you're not familiar with Hacker Summer Camp, as it's called, it starts out with the more businessy. Uh, actually, Jeff Moss put it perfectly, I thought, in the opening keynote for Black Hat. It's the premium conference. It's the one where it's several thousand dollars through the door. You're not going to be going to that as an individual hacker or security yeah. professional. You're going there with a business sponsorship. After that, though, after that wraps I up. I will say they do have trainings. I mean, you can pay even thousands more of dollars for trainings, <laughs> but those trainings are actually probably something even better than you get at DEF CON, but they're like four day. They're like a college course in four days. Yeah, and they cost as much as the college course as well. In too. four days, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but after that wraps up, everyone that's uh, more hands-on in security sticks around but shifts a bit further down the strip this year to Caesars Forums, which last year I discovered is not the same as Caesars Palace. Uh, got off at the wrong Uber stop there. I think we both did. Yeah. And we had boxes of badges, I think. Yeah, I mean, that That sucked. was a big mistake. Anyways, so Caesars Forums on the other side of the, the street uh, where we attend DEF CON, which is more of a hands-on. It's like, I don't know, cash at the door. They do pre-registration now, finally online for like Black Hat attendees and for regular attendees too. But it used oh, to be just that. That they only did regular. cash at the door, period. Yeah. Um, very like, I don't know, uh, like... Less formal. There's literally it's, alcohol stands. It's probably <laughs> more what you expect if the TV were to show a hacker conference. Yes. I, I feel like it's a little tame from the AP days, but it's... Still sweaty nerds everywhere, though. Yeah, and outfits and fun attire and stuff like that. And if you go at night, there's dances and raves and furries. <laughs> I did see a furry day. All right. No, no judgment. Very This cool. is a conference where, in general, you turn your wireless protocols off on yeah. any electronics device Wi-Fi you bring. Wi-Fi Bluetooth was off. Yep. Uh, Wi-Fi and you got to be careful with phone. cellular, even. I hope you don't have any 2G devices. I always, I turn 2G off. You can do that in Android. Apple doesn't allow it, but hopefully all our carriers will turn it off for us. Big yikes. But anyways, DEF CON's the more hands-on conference where they've got, I think at this point, literally more than 100 villages throughout the uh, round of the conference where each village is like specialized on something. Could be hardware hacking, biohacking, car hacking, aerospace hacking. Exactly. Uh, Where you can go and like learn from experts in the field about a specific topic, get as into it as you want or just watch a talk on something there was an xr one i i went and looked and i just saw people in headsets i didn't see what they were doing but there was an xr one which I'm nerds like me were curious about personally glad they called it xr and not uh <laughs> the meta hacking village yeah. uh, although i think meta hacking by a different name would be very targeted towards a specific organization yeah. at defcon uh, but alongside those, there's also some just main track talks as well, too. The giant ballrooms with hundreds or thousands of people in them, for some of them, uh, where people come Hundreds in. of thousands might hundreds be much, but thousands. thousands. Thousands, is, okay. Yes. Hundreds or thousands makes sense. Uh, and it's true. People come in and talk thousands about sure. something. So we mentioned in the Black Hat recap last week, there was a chat from uh, folks from Viasat about the security incident they had in Ukraine or because of the Ukraine war. At Black Hat, as an example, was pretty high level, talking more about the partnership with the uh, intelligence community. At DEF CON, the NSA was at that one. Yep. At DEF CON, it was in the weeds with one of their uh, 
I guess he was an engineer, but leads a team uh, yeah. within Viasat, getting really in the weeds. It was only K said, so it was the engineer and the same CTO, I be- or CIA, CISO, I should say. Yep. Yeah. Another key thing of DEF CON, they've got the badges every year. So every other year, it's a non-digital badge. This year, it's a little plastic. Uh, what do they call it? A, um, I've got it in my notes here. The badge is a Penrose tile. Oh. So Penrose tile, it's a type of tile set where you take two shapes of some rhombi, so like this guy, and by, you can combine them endlessly as a tile without mm-hmm. them ever repeating the same pattern. Oh, that's cool. So, you know, if you put like a bunch of hexagons together or whatever, it makes a pretty discernible pattern, squares, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But if you Those take these won't. two distinct shapes, it'll be just some cool whatever so pseudo-random pattern. Neat. Uh, it does have like a little slot in it for people to customize it. I saw some people with digital badges. I they heard there's something it. you could buy and put yep. in there. As some people did 3D printed stuff. I've got the little piece of paper that came in my bag. Same with me. No time. Yep, exactly. <laughs> We're boring this year. <laughs> um, but anyways, what we wanted to recap on this episode uh, was more so the a few of the key talks that we saw that we really enjoyed this year. Yeah. Um, so I guess like to jump into it, I'll start with, I think, the second one I saw today. Um, and it was called, Look at Me, I'm the, CE- uh, I'm the CEO. <laughs> uh, it was done by Gal Zor, Zror, Gal Zror, cool last name, uh, of CyberArk Labs. And okay. so the talk was all about basically deep fakes and specifically yeah. real time or live deep fakes. And he started out, he says, I'm not a machine learning security expert. He's more of like an embedded systems security expert, but this is just something so interesting that he wanted to try it out as a project. And so the talk was a 30-minute talk, one of the shorter ones, where he basically walked through step-by-step instructions to everyone in the audience how to do a real-time live deepfake of someone. Um, So he talked about a few tools that you can use. Uh, It started, obviously, with Deepface Lab, uh, which we know from 2018. Yes. more infamously known as Deepfakes. He then talked about the uh, Deepface Live, which came out three years later by the same author, which allowed real-time deepfaking. Um, He talked about a tool called RBC Project for Hmm. audio faking as well, too. Um, Some interesting tidbits from this, though. So Deepfakes, it's all about uh, the algorithm basically and split up a video into frames, take identify a face in that frame, a specific one you want to change, uh, you give it another face, like you in another video, and it will replace it with that yeah. other one and make it look somewhat realistic. Yeah. Um, he noticed, so some of the ways it can get tripped up is like facial hair and coverings and stuff like that. Um, the person he was trying to heads. fake, his CEO, is totally bald. Oh, no. Uh, the presenter was not totally bald, beard and face. But what he did was he used uh, Snapchat's Snapcam huh. and one of their filters to remove his facial hair and then fed that in so that it gave it a little bit like it's just one extra step to remove stuff that would confuse the model that's and then pipe it through the model um one of the other things that was kind of interesting from this so it takes time to train these models you have to get like content from the person you're trying to mirror (laughs) so like video of someone you're trying to make a video of. the reason it was always done on like well-known people is you could go online and find hundreds of images of them so you tend to need data just like any other machine learning algorithm exactly yeah so you need like upwards of tens of minutes of video to fake someone's video reliably same with audio what he found though so that's for the live version for the like offline uh non-live you don't need quite if as you much have to a train pre-made it. video you're just trying to replace the existing clip that's exactly. what you mean by non-live it requires less like model training and so you really only need like a minute of audio in order yeah. to do it but he found what you could do is use that model to you train that up with just one minute of audio and then use that model to generate the 10 minutes of training set for the live version so that you really still only need it was that still one pretty minute. good and it still worked yeah, that's a, you, you think you can't be, a, 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 one of my AI ta- speakers said you can't be turtles all the way down. So you feel like the 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 one minute training for the non-live model must have had slight imperfections mm-hmm. and you might be introducing that in your 10 minute, but if it was good, good enough, you yeah. still get the live one. That's and cool. so at the end of this whole talk, he gave a live demo where he yeah. like switched out a PowerPoint, turned on his MacBook camera, 
uh, pulled out a set of glasses from his pocket and put them on. And on the screen behind him, he turned into Jeff Moss or Dark Tangent <laughs> uh, from Defcon and Black. Right, Defcon. So it has to be Dark Tangent. And made an announcement that even sounded like him too, uh, yeah. saying Defcon is canceled. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so fake news. This one, yeah, literally. This one was fun. It wasn't, you know, like groundbreaking research on machine learning, but it was what, like, I feel like true DefCon talks can be, and it's yeah, a yeah. here's how to do something cool in the yeah. realm of security. In this case, like, stupid. and a lot of the old ones used to just be funny, and uh, and people would play pranks. So definitely sounds cool. Yeah, I thought that one was awesome. So how about you? Anything good? So my first one, I don't know if I can go into depth with it. It was kind of very cool, but it was a super low level, like the opposite, deep hacking. So it was called The Ring Hopper, A Journey of How We Almost Zero Dayed the World. Is it so, given by Frodo? <laughs> the Ring Hopper, no, Gollum actually. Oh, okay. My precious. <laughs> but uh, I, I saw how we almost zero dayed the world and that sounded like classic DEF CON to me. So I wanted to see what happened. It was given by a guy named uh, Benny Seltzer from Intel. And Jonathan Lusky from Celebrate Bright, I think. I think that's Celebrate. That Celebrate. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, it was actually a talk that was supposed to happen last year, and I don't remember this, but uh, it's something they found in June first of 2021 that they reported internally to uh, basically, I guess, BIOS manufacturers. Uh, and they had reported it to CERT to coordinate in January 19th of 2021. So they were hoping by Black Hat DEF CON 2022, they could certainly talk a about it. A year and a half later. Yeah, yeah. Put that in context. But apparently it was not still fixed then. So they were told to, it was already printed in the DEF CON booklet. So uh, apparently there's some Twitter posts you can see where last year this talk was in the booklet, but it was canceled on site, which happens sometimes at DEF CON. And there's lots of facetious things like, oh, no, did the Fed arrest them or blah, blah, blah. But anyways, November 8th of 2022, the embargo expired on this. And long story short, I, you know, it's a hard one to explain if people don't know about ring levels and deep computing stuff. I think everyone probably knows that ring three is user land and there's other rings all the way down to I'm ring sure zero. Everyone kernel. knows that. Yes. Ma many people, if, you, if you've Some experienced CompSci, yes. <laughs> you know ring zero is kernel, ring three is user, but then we forget about things like ring negative one, which is like uh, VMM hypervisors, but there's also ring negative two, which is system uh, a system manager that's really memory, and I think it's where U UEFI, some of the secure boot mechanisms, sometimes use this really super privileged negative two ring, which apparently the kernel can't even talk to in, in certain cases. But anyways, the talk, it's hard to go into a lot of detail without, they literally had to spend 45 minutes getting people up to speed. You know, they had start by saying this whole thing was based on something I'm sure you know, a time to check, time to, to uh, use vulnerability where there's certain things that can happen in computing where first you get a bit of data and you validate that that's the right data and then it, the data is like in a buffer like any sort of memory flaw and then once you validate it it's the right data then you can do something to use that data so they need like a race condition to break it then. you need a race condition because the, that validate should make it hard for anyone to inject anything in that buffer to change it but if you can get to it just in the bit of time after it's been validated and then corrupt that memory then suddenly what gets used is is bad memory. Mm -hmm. So they had to go through all kinds of things. They had to teach you how DM. I, I mean, part of it was hardware hacking. They started doing physical ways of of you know uh, trying to get to this memory directly. They eventually realized that they could put a file on a hard drive and use the hard drive to perform DMA actions that would get stuff in the ring. They had to do an elevation from kernel to SMM. Uh, they talked about all kinds of techniques that didn't work. They had to understand like undocumented things we don't think about in, in you know, BIOSes. Like I, I never paid attention to what is S3. You know, it's one of it's the a storage bucket on Amazon. <laughs> well, be, no, no. In this case, it's a success, suspend and resume feature of when you, of course, sleep your computer, your your CPU goes to sleep and is not active and dead, but the memory is still there and things act differently and what you can get to in different rings happen differently. So long story short, really, really deep bug. But the takeaway was, the demo was, eventually from user land, they could get all the way to executing code in negative two SMM. 
a very big flaw. Uh, because this is really, uh, if you know anything about the supply chain of BIOSes, there's this company, I believe they're called Tianocore, that make this ED, EDK2, which is like, think of it as the main SDK like for firmwares and BIOSes. And then there's two other companies, Inside, Spelled Funky, and AMI, that take that, that core one, add to it, and then every other computer manufacturer, you know, Acer, Asus, Dell, Gigabit, HP, all of them use some form of that, which is all based on this same beginning BIOS. So long story short, the flaw wasn't that top one. So it affected billions and billions of devices. And remotely, just if they could get information in the right place on the hard drive, they could get all around, all the way down to ring negative two. That's nuts. So you'd have to be a computer science to, scientist to really get what they're doing. We're talking deep level crap. But it was, it was very cool. And I just found it interesting, too, to learn it was a talk that actually got canceled. And there's always drama at DEF CON. So kind of interesting, very technical, hard to explain on a podcast. I'm glad they weren't like hauled off the stage and like fired like some no. other talks in the past. The Cisco, were you there that year? I remember a Cisco one where a guy literally had to quit Cisco to give his talk. Man, good for him. Yeah. Uh, so the next one I wanted to hit on, both you and I were at this one, so I'm sure you can fill in some details too. But this is that follow-up to that Viasat chat that we uh, we saw, or I saw. Or you saw and described last time. Yeah, at Black Hat. Mm -hmm. um, so this was, uh, crap, I forgot the name of it. Oh, I, I, it's, uh, I can bring it up. It's Defending K Sat, the detailed story of the response, how it was analyzed, and what was learned. There we go. Mark Kolaluka, yep. network security and security engineer, now CISO, and Nick Saunders, who was like the, was a... He says a he was the, uh, the head of security for Viasat's government group. So yeah. if you remember from our last recap, Viasat, uh, focusing just on their like Europe, single European deployment with this one satellite, They've got it bucketed into a few different like user categories or user buckets. Uh, they call them uh, what is it? Bips, bops, yeah, beps. Bips. I remember exactly what you're saying. But like you anyway. said in the last podcast, the third is a government which yep. is separated. Um, so if you remember the story from last time, long story short, Viasat uh, suffered a security incident at the start of the Ukraine war, uh, ultimately attribute, attributed to Russia. And while the talk at Black Hat was about like their partnership with the NSA and the U.S. government in order to try and quickly investigate and resolve this issue, this talk was like the dirty details about what exactly the threat actors did. Um, so, By the way, I like that they started with don't believe everything you read yes. on the Internet, because there's even one story that I read that I assumed was how like they, they said this was not so effective that it knocked everything out. That's not true, even though some stories said it. The attack did not happen from a ground-based satellite station, which I remember reading the story and maybe even talking about that story that they yep. suggested it was ground-based. There were suggestions that there was a Fortinet zero day as yeah, a part of this attack yeah, yeah. chain. And, and so they, their Fortinet was involved, but no zero day. Compromised credentials. Instead. Yeah, yeah. So they, weren't, they were involved, but not in a way that was their fault. So we talked about it last time. Like The threat actors had sets of valid credentials. It took them a bit to log into the VPN, but once they were in, they basically had free reign of the kingdom from yep. previously compromised credentials. Um, when they first gained access, they just tried to figure out, like they sat that there for a little bit and then did some recon and then staged their tools and then delivered those to the terminals, yeah. ultimately knocking them off. Although they sat there for a little bit and maybe doing recon is the assumption because the CAO ever even said, maybe they just went to dinner. It was yeah, late at night. <laughs> it was time to put their kids to bed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they broke this talk up into two main incidents that occurred. Uh, they call them methods, method one, method two. So method one was the wiper malware. And they went into some details about how that actually worked on the, on the host and how they analyzed it. There's some interesting takeaways I had from their analysis of this malware. So first off, if you remember, this incident occurred in Europe. Uh, Viasat is based in California. Yeah. And so because it occurred over there, they didn't have any affected modems, terminals in the United States. So first yeah. off, they had to get some. And they actually ran into issues trying to get these through customs. Yeah. It took them two days, which is still pretty dang quick. Yeah, they moved quick. But I, I thought it'd be, even before they got there, I thought it was interesting how the people, the security experts at the own company, these terminals that weren't in where they were, one was in this state where the LED was just white and one was blinking blue. And they're like, 
don't, uh, we don't even know. So we had the RTFM just to figure out, oh, the, the white LED means it's initial power up. So it should not stay there forever. That's bad. And the blue LED means the it's device busy. is busy. <laughs> but why is it still busy? Yeah. But I just thought it was funny that the actual security incident, they had the RTFM just to figure out the states of their devices. Yeah. I'm, not, not a, I'm not a judgment, by the way. I could see that of many security teams that I may not be involved with no product. No idea what the blinky lights do on the front of a firebox. <laughs> you, we used to. We yes. both used to, but I bet you things have changed where we'd have to RTFM yep. a few things. Uh, so they talked about, like, the other issue they had that we touched on last time was this network's actually managed by a third party, so yeah. they didn't even have access to a lot of this from Viasat Corporate, so they had to set up some of that access, too. Once they did finally get those terminals, they set some, like, ground rules of, you know, we need to analyze this, but we don't know what the heck's on it. We don't know, like, if we start transmitting to yeah, it, is it going to cause it to change behavior? Yeah. So they set a ground rule of when they were first hooking up UART pins, so to get serial access to it, they just did not hook up the transmit. They modified it and had all. to remove one of the four pins. Yep. So they yeah. were able to get uh, logs off of it. They noticed that the log stopped pretty early in the boot process. Um, that was one clue of what was going on. Uh, they worked with their hardware engineering teams to set up JTAGs next to so be able to go dump the then flash. dump the flash off of it. So they modified the boot process. Instead of reading and trying to run the flash, it would dump it. They noticed that the entirety of it appeared to have been modified to have a just a sequential number counting up. So for the the memory of this, uh, instead of it having you know instructions or the file system or whatever, it was literally just like simplifying it one two three, three yeah four, five in each byte location that type which of thing. is very suspicious and not normal um they anal so they analyzed that they got a copy of the malware they found the tool that was ultimately. one team but so it yeah. was one team was doing the hardware meanwhile the toolkit the malware itself i, I think the partner had found a toolkit on one of their management servers yeah, they and they were doing it, something else the there. toolkit and the malware on a management server they were able to detonate the malware that they got on just a modem they had pulled off the shelf from the lab to confirm, yep, this is what it was doing. They did some analysis of the toolkit too. Like long story short, it sounded like it was basically just a set of like scripts that would SSH into various hosts, stage this, SSH into the uh, the terminals, the modems, deliver the malware, and then attempt to reboot it. And yep. that would be enough to wipe it in that case. Um, so that was method one. And it was pretty successful. He said they had like 110 to 150,000 customers in total off this satellite, and 45,000 of them got knocked offline because of this. Yep. Um, the second uh, method. And in the that, first one, you talked about a drop off, yep. and there was two drop offs: the the small one and then a bigger one, which yep. You're there probably was the big to. spike when it first happened, and this long tail where modems continued falling offline because yeah. of the second method, which was more of like a network disruption on it. And this one actually started from. Uh, uh, compromised terminals within the network. Um, so basically, as a precondition for this method, the attacker had to have a modem or a terminal that was authenticated into the network. Yeah. And not just like a, a physically licensed. valid modem. It had yeah. to be one that had been like registered, commissioned, licensed and valid used. license. If like the license had expired, you weren't paying your bills. If it was marked stolen. Or if it was just set up and hadn't gone through the process, yep. it would be put into some other sandbox network. network. So yeah. it had to be a valid uh, terminal. And the second attack just basically abused DHCP in some um, small, uh, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Small uh, intricacies about how their DHCP... Yeah, so basically worked. they didn't have a simple... It, it wasn't just send a DHCP request to one server. There was like three different DHCP middlemen. There was relayers and stuff. And I, I think I, I wrote down... A, that basically using multiple DHCP system roles to confuse DHCP systems working together was kind of how the CISO yeah. said it. So basically, like at a high level, you have the, the terminals and stuff behind them. So the yeah. terminals can be a router, meaning they get directly assigned an IP address, or yeah. they can be a modem with a router behind them, yeah. and that router behind it will do the DHCP request to get an IP address. That request gets forwarded through space and back down, goes through a DHCP Six, relay eight. called a, a VASN, and then that DHCP relay communicates to the DHCP server. Yeah. And the issue that this attacker was exploiting was really that communication and understanding and trust between the relay and the server yeah. and exploiting some of that. So as an example, they could send a, a DHCP request uh, from a compromised terminal using the basically hardware address, MAC address of a 
different like target victim terminal. Uh, it would go to the relay. The relay would forward onto the server. The server would say, wait, what the heck? No. Yeah, uh, the it. relay would then go, oh, okay, and then kick off the victim terminal off of the network. Yeah, so you just cut, cut off a MAC address. Um, they noted uh, later on that it, it took them a couple days to analyze that. Uh, they mitigated it, and that's but when the threat going. actor moved on to the next one, uh, yeah. where they sent a, another DHCP option. I think the second one was a DHCP uh, decline. Yeah, DHCP decline for a hardware address of another one. So DHCP decline during the process is normally where you're assigned an IP from the server, and at the last moment you go, nope. actually, no, no, don't thank want you. It. So if they send that, the uh, relay would attempt to forward onto the server. The server just ignored it; yeah. it wasn't expecting it. But the relay would then, because send of an error the in there, send back and go, okay, cool, and kick it off the uh, the network. Uh, they were able to identify that Viasat identified this attack and resolved it in like a couple hours. Yeah, but then, then the threat third. actor pivoted to a third one using DHCP release, which is during normal use how a computer says, "I don't want this IP anymore." Yeah, and they would spoof that, fire it off DHCP relay through its interaction with the server would screw it up yeah. and then send back and kick that terminal off the network. So this disruption is why you saw some more dropping off. Also, what caused administrators and owners of these to reboot them as a troubleshooting step, which would which cause sugar the malware <laughs> to uh, now no longer be allowed to boot. Yeah. So it was pretty Wipe cool it. seeing like, uh, first off, their their incident response steps. They got pretty detailed yeah, yeah. about like what they were doing for it, and it was impressive. And they I, went you fast. And I can draw some parallels of like how that must have felt. I could empathize with them oh, very for well sure. throughout this whole one. We we had physical hardware. We had to get ship places, firmware, imaging. Yep. We had to do. So understandable, and they move fast. I I, I think the they event extremely yeah fast. February twenty twenty four. You said two days to get through customs, and it was really slowed because of customs. They they had figured out the flash the day after, and they had reversed the malware by March second, which yeah. I think is just like five days later, six days later. That's, pretty, that's right. February yeah. does have fewer days than any other. Can't month. remember. <laughs> um, but oh well, you're right. Then I'm wrong. Maybe it's four days later. Yeah. Anyways. Either way, very impressive, and it was cool seeing like how this malware worked as well too, and how the second attack. Some more details about just abusing a pretty what we would think is a simple protocol. Yeah. Like, how can you take something offline with DHCP? Yeah. But it's clearly yeah. possible. Confusing systems that are working together. They also they didn't get any details, but they said they've also had to respond to eight different RF attacks yeah. uh, over the last year, which as well is too. the satellite, the actual satellite connection. So trying to jam the actual satellite communication itself, yeah. uh, which would well, make sense if Russia was trying to do that. They mentioned yeah. as part of their response, they actually took the Ukraine like uh, user base and segmented them into their own management plane as well too yeah. to try and limit some of the blast radius as well from the rest of the customers using this satellite covering all of Europe. Yeah. Either way, this was a pretty cool talk. And I thought so. I like how they went into detail. I, honestly, I really like how they set this up. Of, they gave some mitigating factors, but yeah. it was funny because they're like, uh, we did some filters, but we're not really going to tell you all exactly. the medications because I'm sure the threat actors want to know so they can continue that cat and mouse game with they DHCP. They did announce a, a private bug bounty program yeah, that was cool. as well. So it's invite only. You have to send in your resume for it, but yeah. they've got like a canary terminal, they said, in each region that you're allowed to go hack if you're a part of the program. And potentially you're in a bounty payout too. So yeah. cool seeing the, you know, business and uh, relationship and interaction side with the government at Black Hat, and then the in the weeds side at DefCon. I liked it. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. How about you? So uh, I'm going to start. You know, I, I'm saving my best for last. The one I really liked, but one I went to that again. It was it was okay, but it took 19 minutes. I was surprised wow. by how fast Rapid it fire. was, and it was. Uh, Reflections on Cyberspace Operations and Warfare, and it was by Miek Ioang. I hope I'm murdering that name. Nailed it. <laughs> but she's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. So, I, I mean, she essentially started talking about, you know, she started talking about cyber war, how for a long time, some cybersecurity people have been pointing out cyber war could be bad, and it's caused, yeah. Really? Yeah. But to be fair, where she's going is actually kind of the opposite. I mean, the way we've been describing it is similar to nuclear. We've been calling cyber 9-11s or cyber Pearl Harbor, where there's huge damages. And at the end of the day, I think her, one, her main takeaway was cyber war. When we say that, we imagine something like very kinetic, horrible wars, which I do think cyber can cause deaths, but we haven't seen huge, massive explosions. 
Meanwhile, in the Ukraine war, when they send bombs, there's huge mass. I mean, kinetic wars get there really quickly. So she is trying to basically describe that really cyber war is not cyber war, it's cyber in war. And it, it, the, the hypothetical cyber war everyone's been imagining didn't really match reality. And she, of course, used Ukraine and Russia as an example. You know, she did mention they attacked uh, back in 2017 before the war. They attacked infrastructure in the electric grid. Bad, but not any sort of huge damage, maybe little power outages. But then think about in 2022 when it happened. There were cyber attacks, but it was like kind of the, the dog that barked but didn't bite. I mean, we'd never heard any huge explosions. Uh, the kinetic attacks were the ones that were more destructive. Were terrifying. And uh, she talked about how with Ukraine, even what she mentioned Viasat. She's like, those satellites went down, but that didn't stop the Ukrainians in any way. They found a way to be resilient. They, of course, Starlink was one of the things I pointed out they did. But none of th these attacks were integrated in the kinetic war. So cyber warfare is real. But I, her main thing was, so far, what they're seeing is cyber warfare is more just an integrated action and not something that should be talked about like cyber 9-11s. And then bam, just like that, she's gone. <laughs> so it was, to me, I, it, this was one, I, it's one of the few I saw. The other one I was with you, so yeah. I'm using it as one of mine. But I don't know what to think of this one. It, My, uh, I've got a hot take for this one. Mm -hmm. in that Actually, I have two hot takes. So first off, there's a possibility that we're just not hearing about all the successes yeah. or failures in Ukraine. Like there's a chance if there has been some pretty massive failures, maybe they don't publicize them. Well, if you think about Stuxnet, right, which wasn't supposed to be discovered, sure it didn't blow anything up, no. but it's changed the state of nuclear armament of entire countries. So it has very big ramifications. Yeah. And I think the, the scariness of cyber is actually exactly what you said. It could be stealthy and and that could be part of the bigger problem so that's my first hot take and yeah. my second one is so russia is clearly a capable cyber threat actor yeah like they put a lot of resources in it they've got citizens in their country that abuse safe harbor there yeah but they're not the most capable in my opinion she mentioned the prc if yes. that's where you're I going point to china and yeah. say like the stuff that's brewing right now and you know like the taiwan strait and if that boils over I yeah. think we probably will see something a little more dramatic, at least in so, targets around there. She mentioned everyone from the government's mentioning war games, which if they've listened to our podcast, I love war games, but now I feel like it's everyone loves it, apparently. But maybe the reason cyber war hasn't blown up into disaster, because the whole point is this idea of mutually assured destruction. Yep. When two countries have nuclear arms, you don't use them because it's mutually assured destruction. So maybe it's been little baby cyber war because if you pull out the big guns, the world's going to end. I will say the one thing, there is one practical and good takeaway from her thing I'm looking forward to. You and I have been following government policy like the White House strategy. She mentioned and even showed a screenshot really quickly of the 2023 cyber security strategy or the 2023 cyber strategy which is an existing document. It has not been released to the public yet, but she said it's in a private Congress right now mm -hmm. being reviewed, but it's a document we can look forward to, to to learn more about how, you know, the Secretary of Defense thinks about cyber strategy for protecting our country from a defense perspective. That's good. That's interesting. Yeah. Did she just like disappear in a puff of smoke at the end or just... I, it, it, the way she ended was so abrupt and she kind of walked <laughs> it was It was unusual. I she was so cool. I mean, she's a fine speaker at the beginning, but it just 19 minutes and gone. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Anyways, I have one more that I wanted to chat about. There's a few others I went to, but uh, one of them was talking about that migraine attack in macOS, the, the SIT bypass, the, yeah, yeah. the something, security instruction, something that we talked about months ago when it was first published. So I won't go into that one, but there was one cool one that I went to um, called Turning My Phone Into a Skimming Device, oh, wow. MPOS Solutions, by Dan Borgogno. Borgogno. So MPOS, are we talking like Square or, or mobile, mobile point, point of, of sale? sale. Is, yeah. is that Square or is that more the like fancier so square, ones? Square uh, was one of them. Uh, basically the ones that you're, you know, are aware of, apparently. Yeah. So him and uh, Ileana, I'm glad I'm not. We, we love you all. I'm sorry we <laughs> don't pronounce names well. Anyways, Dan and Ileana, um, they're from Argentina. 
and apparently these are massively popular around there is even just a way to like make payments between people but i mean you're you've probably been to a farmer's market at some point recently of course very yeah. popular there too um, yeah. so yeah. they're the little devices you'd plug into your phone or connect over bluetooth to facilitate car i would payments. even say modern coffee like a normal modern retail shops no longer have a register plugged no, in and they walk around yeah no, even our poke our, my favorite poke shop in seattle where mm -hmm. you went to is all square exactly um so they first started with why are we researching this well first off a lot of them connect over bluetooth bluetooth has insecurities they handle sensitive data so they still have magstripe as an option on yep. there um, which as you know you can clone that pretty easily if you get yeah. a copy of it uh even nfc is uh vulnerable to replay attacks in some cases emv is a little more secure but you know it's still data and it could be vulnerable yeah. to types of attacks be better if it were emv with pin instead of just signature yep they pointed out that the device is user controlled like yes it's some separate thing you buy but it's going through my phone or my ipad or whatever and i control that yeah. which means a rooted device is a potential concern is there too <laughs> and it's basically got a wide attack surface so they talked about quite a few different attacks and showed actual recorded video demos of each of them. Um, they use things like Frida to try and, uh, or to successfully man in the middle with cert pinning uh, bypass as well. Okay. So most mobile wow. apps these days, they'll use what's called certificate pinning, where if you try and man in the middle the encrypted web connection, it'll Even fail because it's accepted. expecting a specific yeah. certificate. But if you use a tool like Frida on Android, you can basically rip and replace that out with a different one huh. that's under your control. And now that cert pinning doesn't matter. You can still man That's the middle and view the uh, the web traffic. We need to get that. Frida as a client so that our customers can get past things like Dropbox app, <laughs> and that will actually work with our HTTPS decryption. It's algorithm. a very powerful tool, but as with Dangerous. powerful tools, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so one of the ones that was cool was a, basically a transaction uh, replay attack. So transactions when you first when you go to pay for something, there's a lot of back and forth between this device locally and the web server that like facilitates everything up in the cloud. And so it starts by getting a transaction ID, then maybe it sends information about the amount of money and the recipient, then it sends the payment information or verification, and then it says, okay, it's all done. So they found you could capture that, um, and then, uh, so submit a valid transaction, they did for like 50 pesos uh, as one example, and then replay another transaction, even using an expired card, but with a different value, so like 500 pesos, but reuse that transaction ID. And this particular brand of the device would say, oh yeah, that transaction ID Already is approved. Passed. Oh, so shit. it wouldn't charge Shoot. the victim because it was a, uh, a expired card. It doesn't yeah. work, but it would still like credit their account with the money of whatever uh -huh. they arbitrarily put in there, which was kind of cool. Uh, another one they had, um, they basically, so this one's a little more complex to explain, but it involves three transactions and the goal is to double bill a user. So think of a scenario where someone comes into your shop, you are a malicious hacker shop owner and you're trying to steal money from your customers in here. Um, maybe you go, they're trying to buy a shirt, it's 11 bucks or probably a hundred bucks these days because of inflation. Uh, you put in the transaction amount, they go to pay for it uh, and it says, oh, error, transaction failed. Oh, okay, we'll just try again, set it back up, 100 bucks, yeah. they go to pay for it, success, Works. they walk out the door. What's happening behind the scenes is they capture that initial transaction attempt and insert some just like bogus data in it to cause it to intentionally fail, yeah. but still hang on to all the data for that. The second transaction, they allow it to go through, but they use the first transactions like ID and like the legitimate data. So that one succeeds. So the, they, the oh. second attempt is actually the first transaction succeeding. But, but they now the they have attempt. the second now, ID. After the customer walks out the door, they go and set up another transaction. Here's the real money for that second and that or second the real one, value. Send that through in the third transaction. So that at the end of the day, the wow. uh, client, the victim gets double billed for something yeah. or two transactions. Did, did it have to be the same amount for uh, this second? I mean, they, they basically, the second, they really used the the first transaction ID for the first thing after purposely failing it, but the they ID, had a valid. Like the actual, like the transaction data, so they could So I assume everything it. has to be matched for it to be valid. Their so they had to just double bill. $11 transactions. Gotcha. They said they tried modifying the value for the but second they couldn't. one, but they couldn't. So it had okay. to use the same data. Makes sense. I'm sure there's checksums and stuff. Uh, other attack methods they showed, so it's Bluetooth. Yeah. So they did a BLE, Bluetooth low energy man in the middle attack for this, yeah. which, um, 
when you pair something with your phone or whatever, you know, it'll say, oh, read off the numbers on it sometimes to verify you're pairing the right thing. These devices, they don't have an LCD screen. So your phone just says, are zero, the numbers zero, one, zero. two, three, four, five, yeah, six? Yeah, yeah, it's a pre-hard-coded exactly. whatever. And so you as an attacker could spoof a device and the victim may unsuspectingly connect it. That inserts you in the middle of this connection. You connect to the real one. You can relay it across <laughs> your thing. It all still works, but you can sniff it all out. And they found that MagStripe data was being passed unencrypted oh, across gosh. this connection. Unencrypted even, wow. So they could sniff it out. Uh, the last one that was really cool was full-on device analysis. And they started this saying, we're not hardware hackers, so bear with us. Uh, this is overkill, but their setup, uh, I wanted to make sure I do this justice. So first thing they notice, there's no anti-tamper protection. You pop open the case, the thing's still Well, that's bad. Yeah. So ideally, this is a financial transaction device. Yeah, like should have good Data hardware. as it goes from the different components in the device, it's not encrypted until it reaches like the uh, CPU and goes yeah. through encryption. So anti-tamper is important for this, yeah. but there is none. That's why they put resin and crap on chips to at least make it a little hard. Yep. So they basically, long story short, they made a skimmer implant that they put on this device to read off data between two pins uh, from that device. So it was like an Adreno board with a certain chipset that allowed it to read it quick enough, read analog quick enough off these pins. They passed that using Bluetooth to a Raspberry Pi. That Raspberry Pi was then hooked up to a repeater or like a MagStripe emulator. <laughs> so something that could emulate the data on a magnetic strip on a card. Yeah. Basically what they did was when you go to swipe the card and the compromised device, it would the, uh, the skimmer would read it off, fire it over Bluetooth to the Pi. That was plugged into another device and it would swipe that data right into that second device to allow you to do multiple <laughs> transactions. So that one was kind of cool seeing it. It was this neat. big old contraption of like a bunch of crap everywhere and Raspberry Pi, but it was fun seeing it. And like all their demos were really cool. And That's awesome. Well received. So I loved that talk. Their takeaways, like they said, companies that manufacture these, like you should make sure you A, introduce end-to-end -end encryption as much as possible and anti-tamper protection because there are points where data will not be encrypted on that device as it goes from the reader to the CPU to ultimately get encrypted, which is why anti-tamper is important. Make sure if your cloud service is backing this up, you deny things like reuse data or replay attacks. Maybe set up like a TTL, a time to live, to detect fraudulent transactions on the back end too. When it comes to pairings, it's either put a screen on it so you can read off numbers, yeah. understanding that's at cost or whatever. Yeah. So do some out-of-band pairing. Uh, so they suggested, you know, you pair over Bluetooth, but to confirm it's the right device, maybe use NFC and you have to touch it to confirm that that's, that's the right one. Cool. So overall, really good talk by then. Um, and I think my second favorite thing about this, so they were new speakers at DEF CON, you know, for better or worse, new speakers, they have to do shots or they're yeah. sometimes guilted into doing it. Uh, they were very classy, or the goons were very classy. Uh, they got a gin martini instead oh, of having to do shots and they made it fresh up there on the that's stage. That's interesting because I'll say something on, I, I don't mind the shots. I'm fine with people doing water though. I'm glad they offer that as an option, yeah. but that sounds cool. Yeah, very classy. But anyways, pretty cool talk. Hey, I, I wish I saw it. I'm glad I can see it on video. You should check it out when it comes out. So DEF CON talks, they will be on YouTube and DEF CON.org at some point relatively soon in the future for free. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to pay $3,000 like Black Hat to go <laughs> see them. And they generally have better content too anyway. Yeah. Uh, so definitely check them out. Yeah. But yeah, that was our recap from... Uh, oh, I have one more. Oh, you do. No, my, my favorite one is... It, it. So this is high level, and I'm not going to do it justice, because half of why this... This was a packed room, and this speaker was just a fantastic speaker who got crowd engagement and asked questions the whole time. So I saw something that said, shall we play a game? And I mentioned war games, so by the way, that's war games just because it speaks like a human doesn't mean it reasons like a human llms uh it, it, and it had a long thing so here's our ai talk of the day yes and this was dr craig martell so he's a professor he's taught before which is why he's an amazing speaker but he's the chief digital and artificial intelligence officer for the department of defense well so he's the one advising the dod on on, on ai and llms and First, this guy is wicked smart. He was funny. He was walking back and forth on the stage. He was asking questions like good speakers do and reacting real time. So I'm never going to be able to do justice to how great this speaker was. But his whole thing was, I mean, everything we talk about, AI is 
overused and overhyped term. AI doesn't exist yet. There is no AI yet. Uh, you know, everything we're doing is really machine learning. Uh, he talked about, and uh, he the he likes LML, LLMs, but he thinks they're really like right now. The whole media and everyone is like decided LLMs are AI. And he, he said weird things like in his entire career, he agrees that scientifically LLMs, this new level of them are one of the best, the biggest discoveries in the world, but we're overthinking the use cases and what they can really do. And he started talking about things we talked about, the reason they have hallucinations, all the problems. Before you even get to um, ML, ML models, I mean, the first thing he said is, what is AI? He asked the audience that, and there were five different responses. But at the end of the day, he said AI is just statistics at scale. That's that's yeah. his definition of AI. You know, you look at features. He he, he immediately went to a human example. As we ride a bike, uh, someone's in front of us. We looked at the features of that person's there. There's a person over there, so I have to turn this way. And and statistically, I've seen this enough in my life that I can do it. So it's just statistics. It's just predictive based on the past, uh, which, by the way, that was another thing he talked about. It's not good at change. I mean, the whole point of statistics is we're making decisions based on the past. The world is full of change. As soon as things change, all those predictions are wrong. So unless you're measuring the, the efficacy of your AI, unless you create a great model, and wow, it can speak fluently and it's doing good things. But unless you measure how factual its output is, it's going to get worse and worse as the world changes. Interesting, yeah. And you, you have to retrain it at some point. So lots of crazy stuff like that. Uh, you know, he talked about how, why we have to monitor it. Really his main takeaway, I wish I could get into all the different things he did because it was amazing. I mean, one of the things he, he says... LLMs are good for some use cases, and the big thing, horrible thing we're doing is we're misusing them right now by thinking they can reason. I mean, that was ultimately what he is saying. So first he asked, if, if I told you, Mark, I said, I showed you a picture, and it's a picture of a cat, and I said, this is a dog, how hard would it be for you to figure out if I would, that was right or wrong? I would say pretty easy. <laughs> yes, yes. You would, immediately you'd be like, Corey, that's a Put dog. Put your glasses on, man. That's not a cat. <laughs> But if I typed a question in an LLM model and spit out six pages or six paragraphs, how quick would you be able to figure out if that was right or wrong? That's a very good point, yeah. It, it's, right away, first it's harder, but then think about it. The people using LLMs, if you and I put a security question to an LLM and it was six pages, we could figure out if it were right or wrong because we're experts in the subject. Mm -hmm. But if well, I put... <laughs> but if we put a physics question, would we, we're not, the, the context of how most people use LLMs is they're not even the expert right. in understanding what is factual or not. Uh, so he went into that. I mean, I, I wish I could give you the whole, the whole speech. At the end of the day, he got one of the best uh, ovations, I think. What he was really trying to get to is, you know, you should not trust LLMs yet. He actually said code writing that is where LLMs are great. Why, why do you think LLMs would be great at writing code, but not maybe answering the world's questions? Because they're using past examples. It's a structured language. It has rules. It's easy to test. Yeah. Once you tell it to write code, does it compile? Does it run? Yes. So automatically, you might know if it works and does the thing you asked it. And then there's unit tests and other measurable. It, because it's a structured language, it's very easy to figure out if it's right or wrong. And one of the biggest problems with just generative language models, and he also pointed out a good thing. We're trained as humans through all of evolution. If someone appears to speak fluently to us, we assume they can reason. But but you you do know what how LLMs work, right? I think I pretend to at least. <laughs> Literally, all a LLM is doing is statistically predicting one next word, the most probable next word based on every other word it saw before. Mm -hmm. There's zero reasoning in that, right? Yeah. It's just you give me one word and I'm going to predict what the next one might be. And then as you do more and more stuff, I, I, I base the next word on that. But it's just predicting one word at a time mm -hmm. to be the most common based on all the crap it's seen before. There's zero reasoning in that. But as human beings, we're trained to think, if I ask it a question 
and it spits out a reasonably fluent English answer, it must think. Yeah. It's not thinking. It's not reasoning at all. So I, I thought that was great. Uh, the other good example besides coding where he said LLMs have value is translation. He's like, one thing it can do well is like, uh, one person, he, he asked a German speaker, you know, what do you, th or what do you think it's good at? And he says, I'm German, I speak English, but as a second language. So sometimes I put in how I would say it in English and it tells me oh, the more okay. common way. And, you know, the German probably would have spoken in a way we could understand, but because it's using the most common words, right. it gets vernacular and things like that. So he wasn't crapping on LLMs, but he said, anyone that's trying to use this to replace jobs or to reason is stupid. And until you can set up a situation where you scientifically start to give it an input and measure the output over and over to get, he thinks the hallucinations are way higher than we think they are. So anyways, it was just interesting, and you and I are sometimes skeptical of stuff. We've seen LLMs get better. They are definitely getting better, but I think he's right that just because it can make a fancy sentence doesn't mean it actually knows what it's doing. Hot take time. Are we sure that he's not been compromised by Skynet and just trying to <laughs> lull us into a false sense of security? It could be a possibility. It's okay. For sure. They're dumb. Could you know, sure. They're fine. Don't worry about them. When in yeah. reality, they're currently trying to take over the world. Yeah. Awesome. And by the way, one person did ask, because Palantir, right now the Department of Defense is, yeah. is working with Palantir to use LLMs for different defense products that, that will do stuff. Really. But he said he talks to the CEO of Palantir every day, and they are going to be doing measurable stuff. Good. Anyways, I, I'm probably doing it no justice. If that one comes out on video, watch it, because he's a very compelling speaker. He got the crowd involved. There were lots of great... One of my favorite jokes is... While he was giving his talk, you know how at DEF CON they have real-time translation yep. and transcribing for accessibility and, and, and people that can't hear and so on and so forth. And it's auto-generated. It's not transcribed. So he noticed it was happening real-time and he started to test it. And so it was kind of, it was just fun seeing someone that's a master of understanding the statistical models play with them live on the stage at the <laughs> same amazing. time. Man, I'm looking forward it to was watching a good this one, one on... Uh... DEFCON YouTube at some point in the future. Yeah. So either way, this was just day one of DEFCON. I uh, know, yeah. Corey, you have to head out a bit early into day two. I'll be I'll around. Catch a few. Maybe we'll chat about some more at a later point as well. But yeah. so far, I've been pretty dang happy with this year. Yeah, it's fun. It's pretty fun. good content. And it's nice being back in Las Vegas again in the boiling heat. But uh, <laughs> yeah, anyways, hope you found that interesting. And uh, we will be back with a regular episode again next week. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on whatever Elon has decided to call it this week. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. I'm surprised he hasn't just done like a logo the way Prince did. <laughs> the site formerly known as X. Yeah. <laughs>